Let's pray. Lord, we thank you um, that you love us. And Lord, our desire is to continually praise you. We pray, Lord, that as we, as we sing, as we now look at your word, Lord, that our, that our praise towards you would continue and continue on. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at this time, our children are dismissed for Children's Church. Well, about seven years ago, uh, my dog, who's about eight now, eight or nine, close to nine, well, when he was about a year old, he was not quite a puppy anymore, but not quite full-grown and still acted like a puppy. He was a pretty obedient dog. I could take him off the leash when I was on a walk and things like that, and he might run in front of me and run behind me. Maybe he'd run up as far as the back of the church, but if I call his name, he'd run back. And so we, we would do, I've been doing this with him since he was a little puppy. Well, one day, he spotted a deer. And of course, dogs like to chase other creatures. So he runs after the deer, and of course, what does the deer do? The deer takes off deep into the woods, and Bo chases after him. I, even here, here, I wasn't too panicked, because normally I just have to call him, and he'll give up the chase after a few minutes or whatever, and he'll come running back. But this time was different. He didn't come back. I called. I called his name over and over. I started walking further into the woods. I'm starting to get a little bit annoyed. But very quickly, my annoyance is shifting to worry and fear. And so after, before I knew it, a couple hours had passed and I could not find him. Finally, I went back to check at the house to see if maybe he had circled around and was waiting by the back door. So at that point, I got into my car, and I drove around the neighborhood, and I drove further around the neighborhood, and I went, made bigger and bigger circles around the area, and then came back to the earlier circles that were closer. And so after a long time, I came home to see again if he was there, but he wasn't. So it was getting dark, so I went out into the woods. I went to the woods that was not even next to my house, but was further down the road. And I began exploring there, thinking maybe the dog got across the street and is lost somewhere in those woods. And so it was probably close to midnight when I finally gave up for the evening, figuring my best chances of finding this dog at this point are being home and being by the door where he's likely to come back. Well, he still wasn't there. So I sat on the couch that was near the glass door, kind of drifted in and out of sleep. And at about five in the morning, sure thing, I hear him outside the door, like just, hey, I'm back, kind of like no, no big deal like he normally would. And so... When he, when he came, when I went out to get him, I didn't scold him and get angry. I ran to him, I put my arms around him and pet him and everything, and I went and got him a meal. And I was, you know, so excited because I kind of thought I might have lost my dog for good. And I found him. I was so excited to have him back. We're kind of we're like that with our pets, aren't we? Where we just have this affection for them. Um, where they're, they're our dog, they're our cat, or they're our pet. And even when they do some, sometimes they do kind of crazy things. Like Bo also has this habit. He likes to destroy beds. He doesn't anymore, thankfully. Not human beds, but like the little ones you get for 20, 30 bucks if you're lucky at the pet store. And you try to get the nicer ones that look like the furniture a little bit. He had this habit. If he would get antsy, he would destroy the bed. You'd come home like, oh great, there's another 20, 30 bucks down the drain. 
So even though, our, even though he would do some of those things, and I'd be like, I wish he acted more like this person's dog, or that person's dog. He was still my dog. To me, he was still the best dog there is. He's my favorite, you know? And you probably feel the same way about your pets. How much more do you feel towards your own children? And then even more than that, how does our Heavenly Father think about us as his children? Well, we're going to look at today about the story about a loving father. A very familiar passage of scripture we often refer to as the prodigal son. And it's the story of a father who has two sons. And we're fairly, it's a fairly familiar parable of scripture. And we're going to look at this story from two perspectives. We're going to look at it from the perspective of the father towards the younger son. And we're, next week we're going to look at it from the perspective of the father and the older son. So next week, Pastor Marv will be telling us about the, the father and the older son. And today, we're going to focus on the perspective of the father and his younger son. So we can see that the parable teaches us, because our father pursues us with grace, we should return to him. Because our father pursues us with grace, we should return to him. And like I said, we're in... Luke chapter 15, we'll be starting at verse 11. Luke chapter 15, verse 11. And he said, this is Jesus talking, and he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country and there squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And then the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's eat and let us celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard the music and the dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf 
because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes, when this son of yours comes, he who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. I think the basic symbolism of this parable is fairly clear. The father representing God, our heavenly father. The two sons seem to represent two types of people. The younger, serve, the younger son, that's the person that seems to go off the deep end. They make every possible mistake and they commit all the worst sorts of sins. And only after hitting rock bottom does this son come crawling back to God. And then God extends forgiveness to him and wants to celebrate. And then the older son enters the story. The older son, he seems to have never rebelled. He's been a pretty good son. He's kept all the rules. And he's just a little bit put off that the father never made such a big deal about him. And Jesus was giving this parable to the Pharisees who were a group of religious leaders who were kind of arrogant and they looked down on people and weren't very gracious and forgiving and thought very highly of themselves. Now, we'd be tempted to limit our understanding of this parable usually as something like this. We might look at this parable and, hey, what's this parable teaching? It's like, hey, remember, God's been gracious to you. You're not perfect. So if God's gracious to that guy over there who has sinned worse than you have, remember, he's been gracious to you as well. Sometimes we'll throw in that familiar phrase, all sin is sin, and so we're really no better than the younger son. And of course, the parable teaches that no matter how much you have messed up, your heavenly Father still loves you. And if we were to stop with that in understanding of this passage, I think we've missed the depth of what Jesus is trying to teach us. Maybe listening to this parable, you automatically identify with one of these two sons. If you came to maybe Jesus at a later age and you had a reckless youth and you did a lot of things and you messed your life up and then Jesus met you in that deep, dark moment when your whole life was messed up, then maybe you identify with the younger son. Or if you grew up in the church, and, you know, you, you've sinned, you've messed up, you've come to faith, but you, you, never, you don't have that kind of prodigal son type of story where you, you totally messed your life up according to the world's standards and had to come crawling back. And maybe you identify with the older son, if that's you. But what I think is, I think we have all been the younger son. I think myself included. Whether we accept that understanding or not, I think we've all been the younger son. You see, our life story may not seem to have much in common with the younger son for some of us, but as we look deeper into this parable, we're going to see how much we really have in common with this younger son. So we see that sin is a great offense against God. Sin is a great offense against God. 
Even looking at this story at face value, we have to consider how this parable would have sounded in the culture in which it was given. To even meet the demand of the younger son, it's not like he just goes to the bank and like cashes a check for money he was just sitting there anyway. It would require dividing up property as much wealth was in property. And in the culture that this was written, for a younger son to ask his father to give him his inheritance, it's not like today if like a son goes to his dad and says, hey dad, I'm kind of having some trouble financially. You think you can give me some money? It's not like that. This would have been a great offense in that culture to ask the father to give the inheritance, to break it up at that point in time. He basically would have been saying to his father, I wish you were dead. Give me your inheritance. That's what it's worth to me. I want what's yours. I wish you were dead. That's basically what the son was doing to the father in that. Because we're, we're, we're reading this with 21st century Western culture perspective. We're not reading it with the perspective of the, the first century in the time of Jesus. And of course, as a parable, it's a story you're saying that illustrates a truth. Um, if this is an analogy of God being the father and of us being children, we also have to remember not to get lost in the details. There's a vast difference between our relationship to our earthly fathers, the, our father and his relationship to two sons, and the relationship of us as God's children to our Heavenly Father. There's not even a comparison. You know, if you think about it, if you imagine a human son who kind of works for his father, and he works for a number of years, and, and the, the, the son's and the father's business does well, the son may actually feel like he has a legitimate claim to inherit what's currently his father's possession. Because he's invested in it. He, it's, it's in some sense as much his as it is his father's. But it's not that way with us and God. Everything we have, our very lives, belong to God. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't owe us life. He doesn't owe us forgiveness. He doesn't owe us any blessings. 1 Corinthians 4, 7 says, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? You see, our sins, just like the younger sons, are a great offense against God. So we see that we are like the younger son when we treat our lives like our own. We are like the younger son when we treat our lives like they are our own. I think the prodigal son, it's a fairly likable parable for those of us who have messed up and, and the Lord's given grace to us. It's a very likable parable. And I think even non, non-believers and non-Christians in, in our world, I think we, we like the idea of somebody who, who's down and out, who gets their lives together. We tend to applaud that kind of thing. We like to see when people's lives are turned around, when they've, when they've, when they've gone off the deep end in some way. We can often celebrate that. And I think, it's that, I think that's one of the reasons why the parable son is a likable parable to us. We, we think of a prodigal son, though, as the stereotypical wayward child that runs off. Maybe they drop out of high school or college. They, they get hooked on drugs. Maybe they're alcoholics. Maybe, maybe they get in trouble with the law, have a bunch of children in, in bad situations and mess up their finances and and they just make a lot of mistakes and that everyone in the world kind of looks down upon them. And that's how we view what a prodigal son is. That's how we view a younger brother. 
But remember, we, we need to look at what this parable says in the first century, not just the way we look at it in the 21st century. You see, we give a lot of attention to the specific sins and the specific ways that this younger son messed up, right? He went off and spent his money on partying and the party lifestyle and all of that. But what we miss is that what was really outrageous was not the way that the, the son squandered his father's inheritance. It wasn't the particular sins that he committed. The grave insult was his entitlement and insulting his father and feeling entitled and demanding and basically wishing his father was dead so that he could do what he wanted with the inheritance. That would have been the thing that was really, really outrageous in the first, cult, first century culture. But because we're looking at it with our perspective, we kind of just glaze right past that, think the son was a little bit rude, and then focus in on the silly ways that he wasted the money. This parable could have read, read pretty much the same way if that son had said, in, said the exact same things and instead went and invested his money in a business. And then when the economy crashed, his business failed, and then he has to come back to his father, but otherwise was a respectable person in the community. This parable could have read pretty much the same way and could have elicited the same reaction if this guy had been some sort of respectable person in society, according to our standards. Now, this is not to minimize the sins that the son committed with his inheritance, but this parable is not about being irresponsible with someone else's money. It's not being a person who, it's not a lesson about being how bad it is to need the assistance of other people or to screw up and need a hand up. That's not what this parable is about. We often divide people into terms of being either conformists or nonconformists. See, the conformists are those in in the world who we generally think of as responsible respectful people, decent citizens. They go, they get responsible jobs, they pay their taxes, they keep their lawns looking pretty nice. They have, you know, reasonable, respectful opinions about things. They, they follow the fashions. They speak and act in the ways that society says is good and, and what's acceptable. They follow the law. They might even live a little bit beyond their means, but but at the end of the day, they, they, pay, they pay their bills, they, they keep themselves afloat, they don't make themselves a burden to anybody else. They're just decent, normal citizens. But you and I, we can conform to the norms of our societies. We can be financially responsible people and be as much of a prodigal son as the younger son who squandered his inheritance on reckless living. Because what makes us prodigal sons is not the specific sins, it's not the specific things that we do, it's that we have squandered what belongs to the Lord. We have demanded what is the Lord's as our own. We have demanded to be our own God over all that is His. Even if we are accepted and treated as responsible people by the societies in which we live. We have all been the younger son. All of us, including myself, we have all been the younger son. Because we forget that our lives, our abilities, 
the very air that we breathe, or I'm trying to breathe as best I can here, <laughs> the very air we breathe in all of creation, it's the Lord's. It's all his, all of it. And we are to be good stewards of what belongs ultimately to him. You see, this is the great sin in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve were to be stewards of what God gave them, but they viewed God as stingy, and they inf- felt entitled to second-guess his loving, his loving rules, and they took what belonged to him and decided to do what they wanted to. They knew better than God. In a sense, they were seeking to be their own God. They did not need God, and they did not need him to be in his position and them to be in theirs. They wanted to be God. Not like him and being good and kind and merciful, but to be able to have his power and to sit in his place. See, we've all sought to be the younger son in this fact that we have sought to make ourselves our own God. Our own lives and in his creation we treat as our own. In our own way, we've essentially wished our heavenly father was dead, just like the younger son, by demanding what belonged to him. And we squander it the ways that we want to. And when we squander and live our lives and treat what belongs to the Lord as our own, we can do that even if we conform to the norms of our society and are viewed as responsible citizens. You see, you and I, we were created to worship God and to enjoy Him forever. But if the thrust of our lives is chasing, for example, the American dream, or to have a nice home, nice cars, nice things, and our, our purpose in life is to go on nice vacations and, and enjoy all of our favorite hobbies, and that's what we live for, then in many ways we are living just like the younger brother. Because we have squandered our time, our talent, our treasure, what belonged to the Lord, and we've lived like he doesn't exist. In a sense, we've wished he was dead because we want to be God over what's his. And this is true whether we are conformists or nonconformists. Because whether we have to hit rock bottom or not, or we live successful lives as the world would judge successful, we're all prodigal sons. We can even keep a foot in church and be far from God. We can keep a foot in church and be far from God. It's very common, unfortunately, to find hear about some celebrity Christian or some famous pastor who is living some sort of double life. They, they said all the right things. They even did a lot of the right things. They didn't only make a mistake or two, but they were living a constant, continuous pattern of unconfessed sin right under people's noses. There's always a danger for us to merely perform the outward signs of our faith, like going to church, giving some of our time, talent, treasure to the work of the church, while living a double life at the same time. In other cases, maybe we're, we're doing all the right things. We're, we don't think we're committing any of the so-called bad sins. We're, we're not breaking the law, or we're not running around being promiscuous, and those sorts of things. But we don't have any problem with gossiping. We don't look down on others. We, we lie. We're prideful. We're attention-seeking. So maybe if we do those things, maybe we think that puts us more in the category 
of the older brother, who followed the letter of at least some of the laws. But regardless, we all need to return to our Heavenly Father with the same desperation as the younger son. Whether you would think of yourself more as the older son or the younger son, we all need to return to our Heavenly Father with the same desperation as the younger son returns. See, after squandering what belongs to the Father, he pursues us with an intense love, like a father searching for his lost child, like a dog owner searching for his lost puppy. The context of this parable in Luke 15 is there's a group of three parables that Jesus gives right in a row. And the first one is another familiar one. There's 99 sheep that are found. And, he go, and the shepherd leaves and goes after the one sheep that's lost, leaving the others in safety, and he goes after the one. And the next parable is this parable about this woman who, with what was probably a wedding gift, a treasured gift, she had these ten silver coins and lost one of them. And she searched everywhere. And then in both parables, when, when they found what they were looking for, what was lost and precious to them, they celebrated, and they invited others in to celebrate with them. And that's what we see in the context of this passage. I love what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. More joy over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So this parable of the prodigal son It teaches us that the Lord rejoices when we return to him. The Lord rejoices when we return to him. Let's look again at part of that passage, the part that begins at verse 17, where the father responds to the son. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven being before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fattened calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Did you notice, as we reread that, that the son had rehearsed his speech to his father? And he didn't really even get to deliver it. Because while he was a long way off, it says, the father ran and embraced and kissed him. Only then did he get to get a, eke out a little bit of an apology before his father was starting to try to make plans to celebrate. And once again, in this culture, the way the father responded and acted in this situation was disgraceful. Even if the father had you know, stood there with his arms crossed and made the, made the son grovel at his feet. All right, all right, I'll make you a servant, but you're going to work really, really, really hard for me. Even that would have been somewhat disgraceful. But for him to run at him like that 
and embrace and kiss him and then do all this extravagant stuff to celebrate him. That would have been disgraceful. And that when the Pharisees heard it, they would have been like, the, the elder brother is right in his reaction to this. He should be outraged. It is outrageous. Everyone would be outraged if a father acted this way towards such a disgraceful son. I think sometimes we accept the fact that the father loves us. We understand intellectually that he cares for us. And sometimes I think the people who have a prodigal son type story, they embrace this idea the best. Because they know what it was like to hit rock bottom and have nothing and be able to come to God empty handed. And they've experienced the love and the mercy and the joy of the Lord at their return. But I do think that there are many believers who don't have that kind of story, who need to experience God's amazing love for them. Not just understand it, but to experience it. That their father also rejoices over them. Because sometimes we believe the enemy's lies. See, if the enemy can't convince us that God doesn't love us, if he can't convince us that he hasn't paid for our sins, he'll settle with second best because he loves to steal glory from God. He'll make us think that the Lord doesn't like us. That he'll forgive our past sins, but then he looks down for us, looks down on us. He tolerates us. Because we should have known better because we grew up and we, we received mercy at a young age. We should know better. That picture of our Heavenly Father running towards us, that's nice. That's for other people. But that's a lie from the enemy. The Lord rejoices whenever we return. The Lord rejoices whenever we return. I don't know if you've ever felt this way, but being one who grew up in the church, coming to faith as a child, you know, after times where I've been distant from God and then seeking him, I thought that God was like, oh, you, well, you're back. It's about time. Well, get your act together. You should know better. The truth is the source of those feelings was not from God. That is not the voice of God. The same love that motivated Jesus to die on the cross for me while you were still sinners is an everlasting love. And I just love the words of Zephaniah 3.17 written to the Israelites, people who, had known, who should have known better literally for centuries. And Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. See, the Lord rejoices whenever we return to him. However, the Father lets us experience natural consequences for sin to bring about repentance. The Father lets us experience natural consequences for sin to bring about repentance. Now, since this is a parable and it's just, it's not a, there's not a literal son that's being talked about here, we don't know exactly what would have happened had the younger son not hit rock bottom and not, nor were we told. What would have happened if he hadn't run out of money just as a famine was about to begin? What we do know is what it says here. He, he did not return until he had hit rock bottom, until he had nowhere else to turn. Only then, when he faced the natural consequences in the world for his sin, 
did he return? You see, the Father loves us so much, sometimes he lets us experience consequences for our sins. That's what it takes. If you were to read the book of Judges, you would find it's a very frustrating book. Like the Israelites, God's done all this for them. They forget about him. And they just ignore him. They start worshiping other idols. They, they have no, nothing to do with the Lord. And then, as soon as oppression comes, and they get really, 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 really desperate, then, only then, do they plead for the Lord to save them. The Lord would send a judge to deliver them from the oppression. And very quickly, right after that, they'd go right back into the same old cycle. They'd forget about God until they would be oppressed, and then they would cry to God, and he would deliver them. And on and on and on it goes. It's a very, it becomes a very laborious book just because it's like, oh, come on, again? But over and over again, um, the Father loves us so much that he'll sometimes let us experience consequences for, for our sins in this world. If that's what it takes for us to repent and to return to him. That's how much he loves us. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the kind of sorrow that God wants us to experience leads us away from sin and results in salvation. So then what keeps us from experiencing the love of the Father? Sometimes it is because we believe the lies of the enemy. But there is a form of pride that looks like humility. There's a form of pride that looks like humility. You see, sometimes it's pride that keeps us from experiencing the Father's love. To run to the Father with the desperation of the younger son, that would require us to come to him empty-handed. We're not prodigal sons, and we have our lives together. We may even confess our overt sins to God, maybe even over and over. But we hold out on this to this idea that we have to get our acts together. We have to figure out how to make ourselves better Christians. And if we do better, then we can stand before God and feel better about ourselves. And we may not even say this to ourselves, but at some level we, we try to earn the Father's love or to be deserving of the Father's love. You see, what starts out in many cases as a desire to bring glory to God, a good thing by the way, what starts out as a desire to bring glory to God by living for him, we distort it into an attempt to make ourselves feel more deserving of his love. I'll say that again. What, we, what often starts out as a good desire to bring glory to God, we have this way of twisting it into an attempt to make ourselves feel more deserving of God's love. The desire to follow the command to be holy as God is holy, that's a good thing. But you need, you need to remember, I need to remember that just as we were powerless to save ourselves, we are powerless to sanctify ourselves. We are powerless to save ourselves, yet we are also powerless to sanctify ourselves. We need, in order to to walk in obedience, we need to continue to die to ourselves daily. And we have to come empty-handed, needing the continued filling of the Holy Spirit if we're to walk in obedience. We We can't 
sanctify ourselves any more than we could save ourselves. It's only by coming to the Father empty-handing, knowing that we don't have anything other than what he gives us, do we have the power to walk in the Spirit. And I need to remind myself of these questions. And I would challenge you to think about these questions as we conclude. Are you willing to come to the Father empty-handed? As empty-handed as a prodigal son? That includes those of us who have been close to, close to God for a long time and who have walked in the faith for a long time. Are you willing to come to him empty-handed? Are you willing to return to him as a little child? Not as a competent adult? Are you willing to return to him as a little child? And are you willing to experience and to receive the joy and the love that the Father has for you? Let's pray. Lord, we recognize that we have such a limited understanding of your grace and mercy for us. All of us, including those of us who came to faith as children, we, we, can, we can only approach you empty-handed. All that we have is yours. All the growth, all of the success, all of our gifts, everything that we've done, good and bad, everything is yours. We can come to you empty-handed. We, we thank you, Lord, that you forgive us, that not only you don't just tolerate us, and say, well, good thing, you're back. But Lord, you say, I love you. You're mine. You're my child. That's what you say to us. We pray that we would not only understand this intellectually, but you would impress that upon our hearts, your great and wonderful love for you. And that in return, we would serve you, not out of fear, but out of love. Pray these things in Jesus' name.